Zach, we almost forgot our typical theme song writer, Johnny Vince Evans, is also mixing our show today, but Johnny Vince Evans today is sounding a lot more like Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) I like that. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast. Thanks a ton to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season. I'm Mitchell Hora. And I'm Zach Johnson. We're going to take a quick break from our series in Washington County, Iowa today for a conversation with uh, what I would consider to be a pretty dang important guest. It's actually our country's current Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Yeah, as many of you probably know, he's back in the saddle as the Ag Secretary. This will be his second term because he also served in that role in the Obama administration. Before that, he was the governor of Iowa. Uh, So I think I can succeed in my goal of making Iowa part of every conversation that we've had one way or another. Just just great to include Iowa and more Iowa guests on here. Zach, we need more of that. You're just living your dream here, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Iowa. So Secretary Vilsack is going to be leading some of these new policies on conservation and climate that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, uh, especially this idea of a carbon bank. And he agreed to come on the show and talk to us about this. Thanks for coming to the show, Tom. Uh, Glad to be on, guys. So, Tom, we were just talking a little bit about, um, you know, where where you come from, just south of Washington County, um, Henry County, the next county over. We've been talking a lot about Washington County on the podcast here this season, actually, and talking about different pockets for innovation when it comes to sustainable agriculture. Um, What's your hot take on why do we see different pockets where sustainable agriculture is really adopted and how do we continue to scale sustainable agriculture around the country? Well, I think it's a good question. And I think you're going to see expanded interest in sustainable practices and climate smart agriculture practices. And I think, frankly, it's, uh, it's about markets. <laughs> I think the message is coming out fairly loudly and clearly that domestic consumers here in the United States and international consumers, from my previous experience working for the U.S. Dairy Export Council, it's pretty clear there is an expectation uh, that consumers want to know that the food that they're producing has been sustainably produced, is not contributing to uh, uh, to issues involving the climate. Uh, and so to the extent that American producers can get uh, ahead of this uh, and to sort of align itself with market opportunities, I think it's going to create a competitive edge for us internationally. Uh, and I think it's going to take a lot of the concern and criticism that sometimes gets directed at production agriculture and, and sort of turn it on its head. So I'm excited about the opportunity that we now have to partner uh, with the U- Department of Agriculture and U.S. agriculture. I think we can create new revenue streams, new income opportunities for farmers, uh, which will uh, allow them to more easily embrace sustainable practices, to be able to see the economic uh, value of doing so. Um, you know, we lose about four and a half tons of topsoil uh, an acre a year. Uh, we can't continue to lose topsoil at that rate. We've got to really focus on soil health. And at the end of the day, that's a long-term investment uh, for farmers and productivity. I think there are also issues of water quality. Uh, there's no question about that. I think there are strategies for dealing with that in a way that, uh, again, create income opportunities for farmers as opposed to um, uh, basically putting them in a situation where they have to bear the costs themselves for this. So 
Uh, I'm excited about the possibilities. Uh, and I think uh, the American agriculture, because of the market demands, I think are becoming more interested in doing all of this. You touched on the environmental issues and water quality and, and new markets and creating income opportunities for farmers. So I'll just go ahead and jump right into it here. And and the big thing right now is carbon markets. Everybody's talking about them. They're kind of starting to take off, but there's a lot of confusion around them. Um, so are there any ways that you see the USDA having a big role in in playing when it comes to the carbon markets? And how do we help to establish standards that will maybe facilitate a marketplace or what does that look like to you? Well, there are three or four key carbon markets today uh, in the United States. Uh, and they are uh, a, an example of a number of environmental service markets uh, that, that are also in play. There are water markets, there are uh, habitat markets, there's soil health markets, there are carbon sequestration markets. Unfortunately, the carbon markets that exist today were not designed and created, if you will, or engineered, if you will, for farmers. Um, there, there is, uh, I think, the need for, uh, for a farmer-led farmer input uh, effort um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of carbon markets. Um, and that's why I think the USDA has begun the process of soliciting input uh, from farmers. We put a, we've done doing a series of webinars um, and we are uh, also conducting uh, a, we put a notice in the federal registry asking a series of questions so we can get input from farmers as we look at how you could create a carbon market that would be designed specifically for farms. The current markets today, there's like 135 million credits out there. Of that number, about two and a half million are agriculturally focused. Why the small number? Because there's a lot of hassle connected to it. A lot of hassle connected to it. Um, and so uh, farmers don't see the economic benefit uh, to, to doing this. Um, and so they haven't embraced it. Well, we need to figure out a way in which we would structure a carbon market where farmers would say, okay, not as much hassle, that's a good thing. Um, uh, easy to understand, that's a good thing. And uh, priced at a, at a rate or providing uh, the resources that make it economically uh, a good thing to look into. Uh, and so the goal here uh, would be initially to get input from farmers, kind of construct, if you will, uh, a possible approach, uh, have people react to that approach, uh, and then potentially have the Department of Agriculture set it up in, in not in a huge, massive, huge program way at the beginning, learning to essentially walk before we run, um, providing some resources, seeing how it works, figuring out the bugs, and then getting us to a point where we, as we look at farm bills and future decisions by Congress, we can then say, look, this is working. Farmers are embracing it. It's designed for farmers. It had farmer input. There's a, there's a degree of uh, simplicity, if you will, or, or, or stability to it. Uh, people are, are reacting to it positively. Let's do more of this. And it creates that revenue stream, uh, uh, one of many revenue streams, I would might add, uh, that are carbon and climate-based. Uh, and, it, and I think the, the key here, is not just to do a carbon bank, but to, but to look at ways in which we can encourage the capture of methane and the reuse of methane in terms of fuel and energy on the farm and on the grid, um, taking agricultural waste and figuring out through research and development and new technologies how to better utilize the nutrients, if you will, in, in that waste product and, and convert it from waste to ingredient, convert it from a problem to an opportunity. And I think USDA needs to be engaged in all of that. So 
um, this is awesome, Secretary Vilsack, and and already going a totally different angle than where I thought this was going to be. And your comment on that these markets were not necessarily set up to be farmer focused first, and I I agree, and I think that as we set up these markets, we copied other carbon markets a little too much, especially when looking at additionality. And that additionality is not a one-time thing where it's what were you doing versus what's the instant change that you're going to make to the future. Additionality in agriculture is an annual conscious decision, a conscious decision to plant the cover crop or to implement the tillage practice that you are. So as farmers, as we're providing feedback in here, how do we, what's that process look like? Like how do we better understand the true net carbon impact of agriculture what's the what's the path forward here to better understand the science well i think engaging uh the the purpose and function of the u.s department of agriculture when it was first established in 19 in 1862 was essentially to get knowledge and to extend it out into the countryside and 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 we did that through the morale act and the development of land-grant universities and so to me the key here is, is sort of utilizing our university systems, our land grants, our minority serving institutions to be able to do the research necessary to allow us to get to a point where we're more certain. Uh, we have a process. We understand the process. We are we trust the process. And it's giving us true information about the actual impact and effect of, of particular practices. So, so there's work to be done in that area. Uh, that's why uh, it's not just about a carbon bank. It's also about uh, you know, utilizing and targeting our conservation uh, programs as they exist today uh, in a way that that, that provides uh, opportunities for us to assemble that information and data um, and to be able to be uh, to to be better informed about it. Uh, and it's also, you know, making sure that uh, uh, that whatever we do uh, doesn't necessarily compromise or jeopardize the ability for us to to do what we've already promised to do. So when people talk about a carbon bank, they go, well, how are you going to pay for it? And we've obviously had a conversation about the Commodity Credit Corporation. Uh, and uh, well, I think the authority exists within the CCC because it's all about markets. Uh, I do think it's important to say that we cannot do this in a way that would at any point in time compromise the ability of the CCC to do what it's already required to do which is to pay uh, and to provide the resources to make sure the, uh, the PLC and ARC payments are, are being made, uh, the CRP payments are made, those kinds of things. Uh, so we want to assure people that if we set this up, we don't set it up in a way that compromises our ability to do what we've already promised to do. So beyond uh, carbon markets and using them to incentivize conservation practices, I'm curious if you guys are looking at expanding uh, certain existing programs like CSP, or if you're looking at some new ways to incentivize practices, like for example, you know, in, in Iowa, uh, they're actually reducing crop insurance premiums for farmers that use cover crops. Is there stuff like that on the horizon? Uh, I think there is. Uh, you know, I think the key here, and sometimes people <laughs> don't, don't understand this, and uh, even people in Washington, D.C. don't understand it, which is that there's a, there's a good balance between money and people. And by that, I mean, uh, if you can ask for more money, but if you don't have the adequate staff uh, to handle the money properly and to make sure it gets out to the countryside in a, in a proper way, then then that's a problem. Or you can have too many people and not enough money. Uh, right now, uh, we we need more people in NRCS. Uh, the, uh, we've seen a significant reduction in the workforce, and it's going to be necessary for us, I think, to build that back up a little bit uh, so that we're in a position to utilize additional resources that can be put into CSP and equip and other programs 
uh, and to do it in a way that uh, is a proper use of taxpayer money. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a balance right between increasing your investment but doing it at a rate and over a period of time that matches the increase in personnel to be able to actually get the money out the door in a meaningful way. So I think you will see uh, additional uh, proposals or additional uh, requests by the president uh, in budgets to invest more in those programs. Uh, and you're also going to see the USDA try to provide more people on the ground uh, to provide the technical assistance to use these programs properly. And I think you're also going to see uh, an effort on our part to, to look at, at CRP as well. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility or a lot of, of space in that program, if you will, based on um, the, the maximum number of acres we could put in that program. We're about four, somewhere between four and five million acres below where we could be. Uh, so I think there are ways in which we might be able to encourage people to take a look at that as, a, as an alternative as well. So will some of these programs be rolled out through some of the policies that are being discussed today, like the Carbon Bank or the Growing Climate Solutions Act? What's kind of the, the path forward? Or are we waiting for the next farm bill in another couple of years? Well, I, we can't wait. Uh, we can't wait. So I, I think what we want to do is we want to inform the next farm bill. Um, so that's why it's important for us to, to take a look at the Climate Solutions Act if and when, if and when it's passed. Are there things we can do now uh, that are called for in that bill? Can, can we Things we could do administratively? I think there are. I think engaging the Langrain University system in, in helping us to, uh, to gauge and certify and measure and quantify uh, results from carbon, uh, from certain conservation practices, as we discussed, makes sense. There's no reason why we need to wait for a bill to pass to do that. We should be doing more of that right now. And we will. Uh, there's no reason why we should need to wait for the farm bill to propose additional resources into uh, the, uh, the traditional conservation programs, uh, so long as we have adequate staff to, to uh, manage them properly. Uh, and there's no reason why we can't ask the RMA, the, the risk management agency, to take a look at ways in which people might be incented or encouraged uh, to, to do more cover crops, to do more climate-smart agricultural practices through uh, reduced premiums or increased subsidies or whatever it might be, a way of providing incentives through, through crop insurance. Um, and I think there's uh, you know, clearly a way for us to, to over uh, a period of time, to, to creatively and thoughtfully establish some kind of carbon bank that really is designed for farmers and about farmers, uh, and to do it in a way that informs what could be uh, discussions in the next farm bill. So kind of a follow-up on that, you know, my in talking with like Rick Clark and some of these other key farmers and stuff, you know, it, there's a lot of education that needs to happen, but I think as policy set up, we really need to drive that farmer innovation and that farmers can be creative to be able to make these practices work and sequester gobs and gobs of carbon. So how do we ensure that as we set up policy, that it really drives that innovation and it doesn't put farmers kind of in a box saying, if you do this and you do this and you do this, then yeah, you're sequestering carbon, but there's so much, you know, experimenting and there's so many ways that farmers can be creative to make it work. How do, is there a way to ensure that policy allows for that innovation? Uh, I think so. Um, and again, it gets back to, to the relationship between the farmer and extension and university and NRCS and uh, NRCS has a conservation innovation grant program that's specifically designed for that kind of thing. Um, and there, there are millions of dollars in that program that are granted out every single year uh, to, uh, to embrace innovation. Uh, there are uh, innovation, innovative efforts through the National Institute of Food and Agriculture 
which is a USDA grant writing arm of research. There's also the, the Food and Farm uh, uh, Foundation that was set up under the Farm Bill in 2014 that has resources, uh, sort of a public-private partnership where uh, U.S. you know U.S. tax dollars are put in to that foundation, matched with private sector dollars to embrace additional research. I know that they are looking at a number of projects at uh, the foundation that would would be encouraging innovation. I know from my experience with the dairy industry, the dairy industry is really, really innovative on this. Uh, There's the belief among many dairy uh, farmers that they, at least in terms of large-scale dairy operations, can get to a negative emission level with certain technologies that exist today. Pretty expensive stuff. Um, So we have to wait for it to be uh, less expensive. So government has to partner with large-scale dairy operations to, again, to learn to walk before we run, uh, to learn from those lessons and then figure out ways in which we can uh, reduce the cost of this technology. Uh, it might be a tax credit. It might be a grant. It might be something else um, that we look at uh, in order to spur innovation and acceptance of innovation. And then, and frankly, I think there are uh, the responsibility of, of farm organizations, I mean, the commodity groups, um, uh, the Farm Bureau, the National Farmers Union, They've all been engaged in, in conversations. Uh, the uh, Farm and Rancher Alliance uh, has had its Honor the Harvest uh, activities the last couple of years focused on this issue of climate. Uh, they have a wonderful visual that they produced from this conversation about the reach of, of, of U.S. agriculture. It's pretty phenomenal. Uh, and I think it's important for people to understand the, the interconnection between food and agriculture as a single industry. Uh, so that you understand the economic impact of that industry. Uh, you know, the estimates vary from anywhere from 15 to 25% of the workforce of the United States is directly connected or indirectly connected to this industry. Uh, about 20% of the American economy is directly impacted. We saw this through COVID. Uh, when food service shut down, boy, that created uh, a lot of unemployment, created a lot of angst on the farm. Um, when processing facilities shut down, uh, a lot of problems, uh, you know, our, 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 uh, as we deal with climate, we also have to deal with the resiliency, if you will, of our, of our food system. And I think we learned, uh, through COVID that our system is not as resilient as it needs to be. You can't have one processing facility or two processing facilities shut down and put the pork industry in a panic, uh, because there's no place to, to, to process the hogs. I mean, I think we have to figure out ways to create, uh, more, processing capacity in this country. In doing so, we might also create a little more competition, which may benefit farmers in the market. We'll get back to our interview in a sec, but right now it's time for a quick break. So it's, it's my understanding that President Biden has actually directed you to go out and collect information from farmers and from ranchers about maybe using federal programs to help incentivize and adopt, you know, different climate smart practices, which is what we talk about all the time here on the podcast. This is by farmers for farmers. As we say, we're constantly talking about environmental issues and how we move the needle and go forward to do the best that we can into the future. So a lot of our listeners probably have some pretty good ideas because this is what we're passionate about. How can our listeners help and and get that information to you guys? I think we'll go online, uh, take a look at the, uh, at the recent, uh, um, 
listing in the Federal Registry of the questions that we've posed. And and uh, there's a, a contact uh, information there and just uh, email your thoughts. Uh, we're collecting them from all over the place. We've already received, uh, I think, hundreds of, of ideas and thoughts about this. We're going to assemble all those. We're going to review them. We're going to look at them. Uh, and then we're going to try to figure out the best way to begin this process of, of talking about carbon sequestration and, and financial benefit for farmers. Uh, again, as I said earlier, uh, the goal here, I think the plan would be to put together, after we've had this outreach, to put together uh, a, a, a series of, of thoughts about what we can do on CRP, what we can do on conservation programs, what we can do with the carbon bank, uh, and basically lay that out, have people react to it. Uh, we may get it right. We may get it somewhat right. We may get it all wrong. Uh, and we may take a step back, uh, but eventually get to a point where we have enough of a consensus uh, to try something, uh, but not to try it in a, you know, tens of billions of dollars way, but to try it in a way that that would allow us to basically road test this idea uh, and then learn from it uh, and then see uh, if it's successful, how we might be able to ramp it up so that farmers all over the country can benefit from this. And we, it's, it's one strategy of multiple strategies to improve revenue for farmers. I mean, you know, somebody asked me just to, uh, actually in an interview I just gave, and it, it, at the end of the day, it's about markets. I mean, farmers don't necessarily want a government check as they've had to have in the last couple of years. They want markets. They want export markets. They want local markets. Uh, they want better markets. Uh, they want markets that are open and transparent and, and, and fair. And they want new markets. Uh, and I think this climate uh, discussion is where a lot, a lot of new market opportunity uh, it lies. And I think the ability to uh, to create more processing capacity can give us better markets. And I think we obviously need to continue to do work on the export and, and uh local and regional food system to create more markets here and abroad. So I think you're totally right. And the interest and the excitement, you know, coming out of the ag space around this is, is really overwhelming, but I think there is a lot of skepticism because some of these initiatives in the past have, have failed. They haven't been able to be long-term sustainable. So how do we ensure that this is going to be long-term sustainable and how do we bring along some of those innovative farmers that have already adopted these practices, so therefore they're not eligible for markets today. How do we how do we ensure that this really includes everybody? Well, I, I think it's important for us to 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 design this in a way that that speaks to the early adopters and make sure that they're not penalized for being early adopters. I think we also, frankly, have to design it in a way that socially disadvantaged producers, much much smaller producers than some of the folks who are farming in Washington or some of the folks who. Are farm where you farm zach in minnesota yeah benefit uh you know the, uh, just to give you an example uh the COVID relief monies uh there was i don't know 28 30 billion dollars that was provided to farmers the top 10 percent of farmers in the country received 60 percent of those monies the bottom 10 percent received less actually they received 0.26 percent a quarter of one percent um, and so, you know, you, you have to look for ways in which programs benefit early adopters, benefit socially disadvantaged farmers, benefit farmers generally, and to do it in a way that that, that is equitable and fair. Uh, so that's part of the challenge of putting something like this together. 
It's one of the reasons why we want people to be able to say, to, to look at what we're proposing, to get feedback. You're missing the boat on this. You're not doing enough early adopters. You're, you know, you're doing too much for this group or not enough for that group so that we get input from folks. Uh, and, and then we, we make a judgment. Um, the worst thing we can do is to give in to the skepticism. The worst thing we could do is say, well, okay, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And here's why we can't keep doing this, guys. It's very simple. Very, very simple. I'm going to give you one statistic. And I, after I give you the statistic, I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is, do you think our system's working? Okay? Do you think our system's working? Here's the statistic. 89.6% of American farms today do not generate the majority of income for those farm families. Stated another way, roughly 90% of our farms require off-farm income to stay in the farming business. Now, do you think the system's working? Can you think of another occupation or job uh, or business where 90% of the people or 90% of, uh, of the businesses or, or, or the professionals aren't making a majority of what they live on from that profession or business. Can you think of one that other than farming? More somebody farmers got to start YouTube channels, I guess. Well, that's right. Somebody, somebody, somebody suggested, one of my uh, smart guys down in the trade office said, well, what about YouTube gamers? Okay. All right. All right. Maybe there are two. YouTube gamers and farmers. I mean, with that, you can't say, the, I don't think you can. I don't think you can say the system is working when 90% of the folks in the system don't make the majority of the money that they live on from that, from that system. So it's, it speaks to me the need for more markets, better markets, and new markets. There, there's got to be new revenue streams. There has to be additional ways in which the land that you all have can generate additional revenues so that we're you're not in a position where it's either what you get uh, from a market that's predetermined or what you get from the government and right now that's basically it and that's you know if there's a pandemic the market then you get, then you get all of this money from the government and you know that's not what you guys want and frankly nobody wants that as somebody who's been pretty heavily involved in a uh, private farm financial business management group here in West Central Minnesota, we've got close to 80 farms that are a part of this group. And one of the consistent things we see is that the successful farms over time always have another source of income. It doesn't come from the farm. Those family living expenses come from somewhere else. People outside of farming, I don't think would believe that. And I, I think some people within farming don't even believe that. But that statistic that you just gave honestly doesn't shock me. Uh, the number up to 90% is is a bit shocking. But, you know, the idea of what you just said there doesn't necessarily shock me. So then my question is, uh, you know, and I realize we're running up against time here, but how do we bring these new markets to us? How do we find these fair markets, these new markets? I mean, what does it look like the path going forward here? Well, on the export side, it's deepening our, our presence in markets so we have a better understanding of what foreign markets require of us, that so we have more partnerships to develop innovation overseas so we can use our products more innovatively, and it's more promotion so people know more about U.S. ag products. So it's, that's on the export side. 
And it's about free trade agreements and it's about reducing the barriers that exist. And that's USTR, the Trade Representative Office. It's all about that. The local markets, it's about creating opportunities for folks, for farmers, not necessarily to rely solely on the commodity uh, on the Chicago Board of Trade for how, how you price whatever it is you're growing. It's creating diversity in what you're growing uh, and providing additional local markets, whether it's a local school that purchases from you or whether it's a local hospital or, or a prison or some institutional purchaser or a small college or a university. We try to create greater links. So we support that local and regional food system so farmers have the ability to negotiate their own price. Uh, the, on better markets, it's about stricken, you know, stronger enforcement uh, of, of protections for farmers under the Packers and Stockyards Act. It's look, taking a look at antitrust to make sure that the, the playing field's level and it's, it's fair. Uh, and it's about new markets. And I said more processing facilities. Trust me, if you had more processing facilities, there would be a little more competition. You might get a little extra uh, dollar or two for, for the hogs that you're raising or for uh, the cattle that you're raising or for whatever 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 you're, you're, you're developing on the farm. So it's creating better markets. And then the new markets, we've already talked about that. I mean, if you had a market, if you if you had a carbon market, if you had the ability of livestock producers to capture the methane from their uh, livestock production and convert it into energy that goes on the grid, that the utility company pays for it, or it reduces your costs of electricity on the farm, that's a that's a market. If you could convert your agricultural waste, uh, reclaim the water, uh, extract from the water nutrients that can be used in organic farming, take the solids, pelletize the solids, put it in a bag, ship it all over the country, don't necessarily over-apply it to land so you have water quality issues. That's another market, or you create bedding, or you create a material, or you create a chemical, you create a processing facility in Washington, or you create a processing facility in Minnesota that converts that manure into a variety of different products. That's four different markets that you don't have today. So, and then, so, so Secretary, this has been awesome, and we're we're running out of time. But I totally agree that you know when farmers have dollars in their pockets. They're putting it back into their family farms. They're putting it back into their rural communities, their schools, their churches. Like they are going to use this right and going to be smart with it. But my my final kind of question is, what's the first? What's the next step for you? How do we go from here? What's top of your to do list to go and implement this awesome vision that you've laid out for us well, here today? I, I will tell you that there's a lot to be said in the American Rescue Plan and a lot to be said in the American Jobs Plan that the president just announced. That would invest in the infrastructure, the research and development, the innovation, and the new uh, income producing opportunities that we just talked about. So to me, I hope that Congress takes this infrastructure proposal seriously, that it for once and for all finally deals with infrastructure. We're not going to be able to be competitive if our highways, our rail systems, our ports, our inland waterways continue to, to uh, uh, disintegrate. Uh, we're not going to be able to be uh, on, to, on the top of the sustainability message if we don't figure out a way to invest in innovation, research, and development, and create new new revenue streams for farmers, so I, to me, that's part of it. In the meantime, while that's working its way through the congressional process, we're going to take the resources we have and the tools that we have, and we're going to try to advance research in terms of certification and measurement. Try to advance increases in conservation with the right number of people on the ground to help administer it properly. We're going to try to advance getting input from farmers, developing uh, some kind of carbon. Uh, market idea that uh, farmers could could embrace, try it out, uh, see how it works, and if it works well, as I think it will, then basically took, take a look at ways in which we can significantly increase the investment in that. So we can do a lot, and we can will do much more. Obviously, if 
the, the, the jobs plan gets through. I'm told we've got you for just a couple more minutes here. So I'm going to squeeze in one last one here. Um, we've talked a lot about incentivizing voluntary practices, you know, with the farmers. We, we want to try to incentivize farmers to spur that innovation, but are you seeing anything coming down the pipeline in terms of the possibility of certain practices being regulated and not necessarily incentivized for being voluntary? I don't see that today. I don't see that today. Um, you know, I think there are going to constantly be uh, struggles um, uh, in terms of regulations on, on on what we know about science and what we know about uh, various things that we have we have been applying um, on crops forever, um, chemicals and so forth. So that, that's going to evolve. Science is going to evolve there. But I don't, from a standpoint of saying, in, in order for you to do your climate work, you have to do X, Y, or Z. I don't think that's the approach right now. The approach right now is a market-based, incentive-based system. Now, if at some point in time farmers don't embrace that, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe down the road we get to a different place. But right now, it's about markets. It's about driving you and sending you to do the right thing. You always, you want to do the right thing. Farmers are doing the right thing. They want to do more of it. But frankly, when 90% of the farmers don't make enough, the majority of their money, it's pretty hard to ask them to spend more money uh, to do something that over a long period of time will benefit them and benefit us. It just makes sense. It's a partnership. If there's a societal good involved here, then let society invest in this. And as they do, farmers will embrace it. As farmers embrace it, we get the benefit of reducing our emissions generally. We get the benefit of creating new market opportunities for our farmers and new, and new income sources for our farmers. And we get healthier rural communities. What's not to like about that? Yeah, What's not and I to think- embrace about that? I, I think that's spot on and, and it's that by implementing here, this can be profitable for everybody, but we do need to understand what's the cost to clean up water today. What's the cost of all that carbon in the atmosphere today? And then what's the cost for the farmer to be able to be part of the solution? And, and as long as it's profitable for everybody, I think we've really got something that could be long-term sustainable here. Well, if we don't do this and we allow the temperatures to continue to rise, um, Farming is going to be a whole lot more difficult because you're going to have to ratios more frequently. You're going to have floods. You're going to have droughts that are more serious. You're going to have pests and diseases, and we're going to have uh, viruses that we're dealing with. This whole notion of one health. We've got to be as concerned about animal health as we are about our own health because there's a connectivity there. And that's a whole other set of issues that we need to talk about at some point. But uh, there's a lot to be done here. Well, yeah, this has been awesome. We really dug into it more than what I what I anticipated, which has been awesome. And thanks, Secretary, for being on with us. Yeah, thank you very much, Secretary Vilsack. Happy to do it. I thought that was pretty interesting, Mitchell. What did you think? He seemed to have a lot to say. Yeah, Zach, this was a really, really interesting conversation for me. And I'm actually super, super impressed at the thoroughness of Secretary Vilsack. I really... Um, really thought he knows his stuff and and I'm very impressed at the thoroughness of a lot of his answers um, and the depth of the conversation that we got to here today. Yeah, I would say the same. It seems like they're pretty well aware of where they're standing right now with the issues that we brought up, specifically with carbon. You know, it, it seemed like he wasn't being real vague like politicians can do sometimes. He really seemed to kind of get to the point and explain where they are and what their thoughts are as far as where they want to head. Yeah, I think that's 100% it, you know, that I like that on the podcast here, we can really get our guests out of their normal talking points and we can really get into 
the farmer talk on how is this really going to be implemented. But I think a key thing for me, you know, is that the Biden administration and Secretary Vilsack, they've really put a lot of emphasis on carbon and on climate overall. He's very clearly done a lot of homework. I know he's got a lot of great resources behind him too, and talking with a lot of farmers um, and folks from throughout the ag industry. So I hope he took some good notes from us too, and maybe we can help to influence a little policy here, Zach. Yeah, it's almost like he never skipped a beat, but we didn't get to discuss our uh, coconut farm with him at all. I really thought you were going to bring that up, especially at the end, but you uh, you held that one back. I suppose yeah. it was kind of a little bit too serious of a conversation to tell him, and and we don't want to you know spring Oprah on people, and that we we don't want to throw around all the big names right away. Yeah, we don't want to start name dropping. Plus, Annie had uh, Annie really wanted us to make sure we got some of these important questions in that apparently the listeners were interested in. So, Secretary Vilsack threw out that they're looking for some feedback. And a comment pool is actually out right now where they are accepting comments through the end of April on a couple different things that the USDA is working on. So specifically around the climate crisis is what they're wanting to discuss. And maybe in the show notes, we can link in the actual uh, URL, but they've got a couple of questions on there asking about our feedback for climate smart agriculture and forestry. I definitely plan on providing some of my thoughts. And I, at this point, I plan on making my thoughts totally public. I believe all the comments on here are public anyway. This is to drive conversation. And Zach, I actually had a conversation here just this morning on kind of a um, Friday morning coffee discussion with, with some farmers. And actually, um, our friend Bill Northy was on the conversation this morning. Just a ton of good insight, I think, coming from farmers that carbon and these markets and stuff are really interesting, but the farmers do need to lead the charge. And that, that was a huge takeaway from from my standpoint in talking with Secretary Vilsack is he really wants this to be farmer focused, that the farmer is the one that's making the money, not necessarily companies or investors, but the farmers are really the ones that can profit um, and really cool that we can directly provide our feedback and help to influence policy. Yeah, and that's obviously important because agriculture, you know, it's diverse and it's not real simple. So we need to make sure we do involve the farmers. So I was glad to hear him say that. We are going to have that linked in the show notes. Uh, so if you guys or anybody listening to this is interested, wants to be a part of the conversation, uh, make sure you can check that out and head over there and do that. Be a part of that conversation as we move forward. So that is it for field work today. Take us out, Johnny. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help from Laurie Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. Be sure to check us out on social media. We are at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels, and we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us. Don't forget that we love hearing from you, so give us a call with your comments or questions at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
I think we should just have a, a jam band episode. I'll, I'll I'll play the uh I'll play the beer bottle. Mm.